This is Milestones, in partnership with WBGO Studios. I'm your host, Angelica Beener. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm so glad you are joining me. Here, we take deep dives into milestone moments in music and culture during landmark years. This year marks the 60th anniversary of two giants of music, with 27 years between them, coming together one time only for an album that would increasingly influence popular culture with each generation. On this episode, Emmy Award-winning, acclaimed, multi-instrumentalist, vocalist, songwriter, Braxton Cook joins me to discuss the 1963 recording, Duke Ellington and John Coltrane. Fader Magazine has named Cook a jazz marvel, and Ebony Magazine listed Cook as one of the top five jazz artists to watch. He has worked with the likes of Christian Scott, John Batiste, the Christian McBride Big Band, and Marquise Hill, as well as Rihanna, Solange, and the legendary Quincy Jones. His distinctive amalgamation of jazz, R&B, soul, funk, and hip-hop and social and cultural commentary shines its brightest yet on his latest project, Who Are You When No One Is Watching, which drops everywhere today. Citing Coltrane as a major influence, I'm honored to be joined by Braxton Cook to discuss the depth and impact of Ellington and Coltrane 60 years later. Let's get into it. Hey Braxton, thank you so much for being here. Happy Black History Month. Hey, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Firstly, I want to congratulate you on your new album that dropped today. That's amazing. I'm thrilled to be able to, and honored really, to, to you know, to celebrate this day with you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's, it's it feels good to to be able to release this this body of work that I've been working on over the past couple of years. Uh, yeah, it feels like a, a door just opened, you know, to to be able to share this this music and to share kind of my story and what I've uh, experienced and been through over the past few years. And uh, hopefully this resonates with people and and uh, better just serves as a platform to bring people into this music uh, that's rooted in soul, jazz, and, and everything in between R&B and hip hop. And that's what it's about, uh, breaking down those walls and, and, and bringing people into my life and my story and, and the history of the music. I love the title of this project. It's such a timeless and timely message. It feels like, who are you when no one is watching? It feels like it really speaks to the heart of our humanity. But tell me more about how you arrived at that title. It was at first just an an effort to share more about like who I am, the people that, that my parents that have sacrificed so much and the intentionality they put into parenting and raising four Black boys um, and getting us to where we are today. And then now as a, as a father, you know, it really puts me, I have a, I have a one-year-old son, one-and-a-half-year-old son, um, and married as well. And it, and it really puts you in that reflective space of being grateful for just where you are. And there's nothing like having a child that really makes you think about how hard this is, how much work this takes, and that uh, it's no, you know, it, it's, it's no accident that I've made it this far took a lot of love and a lot of prayer and a lot of intention. And, and I wanted to share that, you know, uh, so I interviewed my parents a, a bit and, and share some of that dialogue, you know, kind of scored with some music on uh, to help tie the, the narrative of the album together to kind of share that. Uh, and just where I am in this stage of life, you know, to have an incredible partner to help do this. It's great. 
Yeah. And they're on they're featured on the, the cover of the album. Shout out to my wife, Shea Crowder. Uh, she's also a professor over at LMU and uh, political science department. She's just awesome, uh, an incredible partner. And I had to showcase them on the cover of the record uh, as well, just because, yeah, like I said, this is where I'm at in life right now. Um, and I want to just show and, and, and showcase the people that have got me here and inspire me to continue to push forward. This album deals with the reality of this world as it pertains to living under the threat of injustice, watching it play out. Mm-hmm. It's a contemplative record. It's, yeah. conf- you know, it's confronting and it's also comforting and, mm-hmm. you know, anchored by all the things that you just spoke of, you know, your wife and child, mother, father, you know, and then the the music itself, it's, it's, it's sort of ethereal, like a time travel. And it, it feels like it takes you somewhere within your own story, which is not easy, you know, to do. And not to mention, it's just immaculately produced and features some amazing musicians. But before we get into who's on the record, you know, I'd love if you can just talk to me about how you conceptualize the album to put all of these themes together, the beauty, the heartache, the resilience. Like, what was that like for you? Well, conceptually, I wanted it to be very much like journalistic in in that I I went through really my journaling over the past couple of years, like uh, over the pandemic uh, and and how I worked through some of those things. I went through, you know, quite a transition over since 2020, like moving across the country from New York. I lived in New York for 10 years, but then moving to L.A. Um, You know, my parents uh my parents' marriage is but you know that they've they've since separated um and 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 the grief that came along with all of that uh you know then then stepping into parenthood and then trying to to, to kind of uh still artistically make find find my place again almost my bearings you know what I mean it was a lot of different kind of um like like structural changes almost to my life all at once. So I think a lot of it, like I started, you know, kind of going to therapy and uh, that was an invaluable resource through that period of time that kept me just sane and just having to write down all of my thoughts. Right. And then I started kind of going through them and, and a lot of music kind of started to to come from all of this gold. And it's one of those tunes kind of about both my parents relationship and then also mine and uh, statistics is, you know, there's some love songs throughout, but I knew I wanted there to be. Uh, a social justice kind of uh, theme and and thread throughout all of the music, which is very prevalent in all jazz music. So I have my tunes like MB, him, historic, you know, tunes that I've written kind of inspired about what's been going on. And as you know, George Floyd was murdered during this same two year stint um, over the summer of uh, 2020. So, you know, that, that really hit me hard and a lot of people. So like, I, I kind of just processed that and that came out and it's, own way. So I, I wanted a social justice lens uh, or, th- or thread. Then I wanted to have a theme of, of uh, you know, just kind of finding yourself has always been a theme in a lot of my music. Somewhere in between is about that finding yourself artistically and kind of existing between multiple different styles, multiple different people, different spaces. And uh, sometimes just being in between those is, is a, a place that I've always felt I've been. And I, and I want to speak to that because a lot of people can resonate with that. I found through a lot of media, even like more so I'm starting to see people that I felt reflect me and my personality, you know, like uh, I watch Insecure, or I watch Atlanta and I'm far- finally starting to see myself in certain ways, but I want to do that as well musically. Um, yeah. You know, I'm not always like the, the 
you know, you see a lot. I grew up seeing a lot of just like hard hip hop, R&B, kind of like gangster rap of the 90s. I'm like, eh, it's not necessarily me. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, I don't necessarily want to be the buttoned up kind of jazz, straight ahead, traditional purist. But even though I love that music, I always wanted to f- try and find a space uh, where I see myself. So that's a theme. And then, of course, love is is the the, the tool and the one of the most powerful tools, I think, of really trying to communicate that and enact change. Um, and that's something that, you know, is prevalent in all of my music. And I'm sure just in my personality, I'm a, you know, that's just like who I am. Yeah. Yeah. I can see it. You have this light behind you, but it's, it almost is like, (laughs) it almost is like this ring around your aura. You know, you just have such a lovely aura, even before meeting you, I could, so it was sort of a palpable energy and, and, and a very um, loving aura. And I think that's what not just the music needs, but the community needs, you know, Mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm grateful to you for that, because as you said, we're all going through things. I mean, people like to say the pandemic is over, but there's, we're nowhere near out of this. And we have no idea how from an emotional, uh, psycho-emotional level, this is all going to sort of ripple for years to come. And Absolutely. so even just being, you know, a beam of light through all of this, it, you know, it can take a toll as sure. well. So, you know, just tremendous gratitude for you, to you, excuse me, for just radiating in, in the midst of all of this. Um, you know, like you said, uh, the song MB, which is for, you know, Micaiah Bryant. And, you know, I must admit when that happened, I, I fell into a bit of a depression and, um, yeah, Brianna Taylor as well. It was, it was a lot all at once, right? Me too. It was, yeah, it was a lot at once. Like you said, um, you know, coming up on year three in May with George Floyd and just, you know, all of that was tough, but I want to particularly thank you for, lifting the voice of Micaiah Bryant, because I think that we don't often have Black women at the forefront of our consciousness when we're having these conversations when it comes to police brutality and violence. Exactly. And so I, I'm I'm sure that was um, purposeful or intentional, but I also just want to, you know, thank you. Thank you for that. Thank and then there's a... Compliment. Oh, you're welcome. And then it's a song like, you know, the 90s, which was my coming of age, because, you know, I, I'm a little longer in the tooth than you. So like <laughs> thinking about the 90s, I'm like, oh, yeah, this this is great. So there's this beautiful balance mm-hmm. of our experience. And I think that's really important in Black History Month, because we tend to think about just all the, the tough parts of um, the American story that we're still very much in. So I just feel like this album gives you oh just a holistic view of of blackness. It's and it's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. It's there's so much to it. It's such a complex conversation. Um that yeah, that I didn't necessarily go out of my, you know, my way to try and do that because that would be almost an impossible task. But I do think I've been fortunate to just be raised in a family um, where my my father's a law professor. You know, my my parents, you know, came from rural Mississippi or Magnolia, Mississippi. My dad's house was maybe the size of his room, you know, like to have come from where they come from and and stay connected to that and and, uh, also just focus on the the history. My dad teaches civil rights law and, and, and constitutional law and then 
you know, I grew up in a very critical household where we, we've been discussing, you know, like like the Civil Rights Amendment or, or or all types of, you know, laws and things that kind of affected Black people in this country. Mm-hmm. Very much been centered in like the, the the middle of our family. That's kind of what we're about, these kind of conversations. And it's it's no surprise that my music and my art kind of reflects that. Uh, and, and even the part of that I found in life, you know, my wife being someone that studies this at a kind of statistical levels of political scientists it it makes a lot of sense uh, so i don't know it's uh again a lot of this was just kind of bred in 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 instilled in me as a, at a young age and it's i really appreciate you even saying that it, to some degree you think it captures you know the holisticness of who we are in our experience because that's that's beautiful like that's that's all i could ever hope to to hear so that's why you know that's very powerful i tried to but it's it's a uh, that means a lot because yeah, there's joy, there's sadness, and I, I'm just not one to always dwell in the dark. Um, we have to try and use love to, you know, shift our our space and shift where we are in life. And I, I try to do that with my music. I try to do that as a person. Uh, this album features some incredible musicians, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. Um, Masego, he's amazing. Yeah, he is. Uh, Jonathan Pinson. Oh, yeah. he, he's funny. Yeah, yeah. Masego's hilarious. Like he <laughs> provides a lot of that. The '90s music video is really funny. If anyone's ever, you know, uh, they want to watch it, like check it out on YouTube. Masego is very funny. <laughs> um, Jonathan Pinson, Joshua Crumbly, Marquise Hill, Paul Corner, so many amazing musicians. Uh, not to mention you. This stunning work as a vocalist, saxophonist, keyboardist, the whole thing. You're doing it all. So. Okay. Talk to me a little bit about the band. Oh, yeah. Those are like my best friends, really. Uh, so, you know, Andrew Renfro, got to mention Andrew. He's the guy that plays a lot of the guitar on uh, almost all the instrumental records. That's him playing guitar. So, yeah, MB takes a solo on that. Uh, statistics, he takes that intro. Uh, yeah, he's just great. So me and Renfro, we go back. We went to, we went to Juilliard together. And, you know, he's, he's even helped to write a lot of the music on this particular record. I remember taking demos over to his house. Like I took Black Mona Lisa over there and I wrote the A section, uh, but he helped to, to write the bridge. He's like, bro, this needs a bridge. So he wrote yeah. a bridge on that. He wrote a bridge to meters. Um, he's great. Jonathan Pinson, we, we also go back. He was like groomsman in my wedding. That's my guy. Like, Great dude. Great dude. Paul Cornish. I, I had just met him really out here in L.A., uh, but he's an incredible musician and like a good friend. Um, Crumbly as well. We go back to Juilliard, Joshua Crumbly on bass. And then I got, uh, what, like Henny on there. Hen- Henock Montez plays some bass throughout the album on a lot of the vocal tunes. Mm-hmm. I got Curtis Noahside, who I also tour with. He plays drums, who played on the same. Marquise Hill, who I toured with as well. is a great jumper player. I wanted to feature him. And I'm sure I'm missing some people in this moment. But like, yeah, nah, everyone of my generation... I want to try and capture it on on record uh, so that people can look back on this time and be like, oh, wow. You know, I'm sure we'll all go on to do different things, but it'll be cool for people to look back and be like, oh, wait, wait, they were all peers and friends, especially in this era of playlisting and all this. People may forget um, just where everything comes from mm-hmm. and, and how how it all adds adds up together. It's like, no, like we're, we were all good friends and this is this should be documented. I love that. I love that. And and I would think that on a project like this that feels personal like, and is so deeply personal okay. to you that you have your people 
yeah. with you, you know? So that's, that's amazing. Well, everybody, who are you when no one is watching Braxton Cook? It's out today. Go check it out. Support it. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous project that I guarantee will just make your Black History Month all the more lit. That's it. Turn up. And and yeah, be and don't be afraid to be who you are. You know what I'm saying? That's that's another message of the record. Just mm-hmm. when no one's, you know, when no one's watching, kind of speaking to just this era of social media and, and where we're the space we're in in this time is it's important to kind of stay true to who you are, your values, the things that make you that got you to where you are and the things you you truly believe in. I love that message. So you won an Emmy, congratulations, for your participation in the Vox series Earworm. The episode was titled The Most Feared Song in Jazz Explained. And they were speaking, of course, of John Coltrane's Giant Steps from the album of the same title released on Atlantic Records in 1959. I think an album that we all love. The the piece that you were featured in has been viewed over nine million times or something crazy like that. And so, you know, we're here to talk about John Coltrane and Duke Ellington, their 1963 LP. And I wanted to start by asking you about Coltrane. I think for all of us who love this music, we all kind of have this pivotal moment when Coltrane came into our lives. I'd love to know yours. Funny that first time I ever heard Coltrane, my dad tried to play me this Coltrane record and it was it was like maybe a late 60s Village Vanguard record. It's pretty avant-garde for, you know, for my little 10-year-old years. And I was, it's funny enough, I wasn't ready for it. I wasn't ready to hear it. Um, I was like, oh, interesting. But maybe he planted a seed, you know what I mean? Very, very early. Um, I think when I came back to Coltrane kind of, you know, on my own volition, it was, uh, I was high school. So first it was, I discovered like Grover Washington, then I checked out his influences and it was Cannibal Adderley, then I found Bird, and then at Bird I was hooked. And then eventually I found a Coltrane. Um, I found just Coltrane playing. Let me see, what tune was it? So yeah, you know, those early jazz tunes when you're at jazz camp were just like Mr. PC and stuff like that. So I'm actually checking out literally the Giant Steps, you know, record, actually. Um, and Giant Steps is, just, is a catchy melody. As complex as it is, I liked it early liked it so that was like very early days when i heard, first heard coltrane and then in a sentimental mood like not even joking that's Ooh. actually one of the recordings that i heard a lot that my parents would play and that's something i, I like i would study i loved coltrane's just approach to to melody mm. uh, sensitivity that just how he would play his upper register and something that just always stuck with me and then the last thing on Coltrane, sorry, I could go forever, but is, is, uh, I want to talk about you, Newport, 1963, same year as this, um, breaks me down, literally, literally, mm-hmm. I'll never forget, sophomore year of college, freshman year at Juilliard, one of those years, I'm listening to this, I want to talk about you, and I just, I broke down, bro, it, it was, it's incredible, that cadenza is one of the best pieces of saxophone recorded to me ever uh he just plays with so much love and the spirit is just so present i think it's roy haynes on that recording but that one just changed me and to hear that and to know this is the same year that he's playing with duke ellington and playing these beautiful tunes and to hear that kind of 
you know, these generations and different styles kind of melding together, it's uh, it's incredible for me. Mm-hmm. Just hearing you talk about that tune, I'm hearing it in my head and I can almost weep. Just, just the first few notes. Oof. Oof. So good. Oh, yeah. Just gorgeous. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's funny. This, this is a time in Train's career. Yeah, you were talking about 63. Yeah. Where he's at a point of this artistic evolution. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's being met with a lot of heat from the critics. And I thought it was interesting when I was reading some articles around this time and they were calling the music angry, um, fiery, angry, you know. Um, Those the, are the adjectives used to describe it at the time, right? Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, producer Bob Deal, who had done similar Ellington pairings with Armstrong or Coleman Hawkins, he kind of sets out to, and he's head of Impulse, where Train is, you know, pretty new at the time. And he sets out to sort of reintroduce Train as this softer artist who's capable of more sides of himself. Because 63, we have uh, Ellington and Train, ballads, and the the Johnny Hartman record. And it's all in, I mean, these are gorgeous albums, some of my favorite. But I wanted to ask you, especially as a Black man, for Mm -hmm. all of its well-intendedness of like, well, let's show this side of him. Right. How much of this do you think is rooted in this idea that rage, anger, or even fire and passion need to be like quelled? Sub- yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's a when you explaining that in that way, it's like that's that's a bit that's upsetting for sure. And that, you know, people are still dealing with a lot of those same um, forces in the music uh, that, you know, ultimately are, are, you know, kind of based in racism and this respectability. I think that's what deep down I've had issue with trying to present perfect, too perfect, too clean. Something ab- about that is that if you're just right, you know, the just the perfect type of Black person, then everything will be okay. And then you'll be accepted when it's not, it shouldn't be framed in that manner at all. And that, that, that is a, um, that's upsetting for sure. As a black as a black man, I, I just I, in a lot of ways, yeah, I disagree with with trying to become too like palatable for the masses, um, and in any way really altering you know who you are and what you're about in order to be accepted. That's a, that's really tough, man. But I, I get I understand obviously from the space of, of commerce what maybe this producer may be thinking, but um, mm-hmm. I, I'm like, nah, you gotta. And if you are going to do that, it's like, I love that he's also in the same years and live when I'm touring, I'm staying true to who I am. Um, so there is that there's balance uh, in the world, you know, there's balance as an artist, like he still had those outlets to be in who he is creatively. But that's just very interesting. Three records of, of pretty much ballads with with singers or, mm-hmm. or um, you know, very popular artists. Interesting. Yeah. Like this, this idea of commercial viability. But yeah. I, I especially wanted to ask you about that because, you know, in in following your your path as an artist and mm-hmm. being so young, there's an unapologetic, beautiful, just honesty mm-hmm. about where you've chosen to take your music. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't feel, when I say unapologetic, not, it doesn't feel, and if it did, it'd be okay, right? Like I'm checking right. my own subconscious respectability mindset here right 
but your way of doing it is so honest, Mm -hmm. but it's also radical in a way, because like you just said, like there's an expectation and sometimes even a pressure for artists, even now to be careful not to step too far out, you know, but you know, I felt that almost my whole career, I'll say like, being able to tour with Christian Scott at the time. Then while also a student at Juilliard was this interesting juxtaposition where I'm like, you know, I had school, you got to wear a black suit, white, uh, black suit, white shirt, black tie. You know, we would get an infraction if we're not wearing long socks type thing, that energy. And then I go on the road with them, you know, and that was like almost the exact opposite in a lot of different ways, like uh, culturally. And I don't know, it's just seeing, seeing their unapologetic kind of emb- embrace of who they are and what they're about really inspired me to do very much the same um, early. And, and then to see that be accepted, to see audiences loving that um, back in 20, was 2011, 2012, you know, I'm like, okay, there's a space for this. It's accepted, it's loved, and it's, um, it's empowering to be around. And eventually, you know, I'm thinking, like, I want to do something like that in my own way. So yeah. then here I come, start singing a little bit, which is a departure for sure. Even as even with Christian's group, it was very instrumental. Here I'm writing beats, thinking beats and singing a bit. And yeah, I remember having meetings. Of, I won't even say their names, but certain labels, and they're like, "And hey, maybe you should just sing. Like you look young, you got a good look. You should just just sing. Just put the horn down." And just, you know, I've had a lot of those conversations with ARs over the years, and for sure, there is a bit of like, no, like uh, I am. I've been committed to trying to do both. I have records where I have full-on crazy saxophone solos into a ballad, and maybe it doesn't make sense now, but that's how I've always heard it, because that's how I listen to music. I'll go from, uh, like I said, I want to talk about you, to Frank Ocean, Pink Matter, to John Mayer. Like, that's how I listen to music in the car. Doesn't It's not that different to me, whatever. You know what I'm saying? To Erica Badu, and then back to an instrumental jazz record. So I've, that's how I would listen to things and process things, and then that's how I put records and my own music together. You know what I mean? And hoping to find that listener that gets it, that sees the through line. I love that. Mm -hmm. And and it's interesting that they would use Ellington to sort of co-sign Train's commercialness or his commercial viability. Because if we think about Ellington, I mean, Ellington's stamp on anything is... Mm -hmm. That's all you need, right? Yeah, yeah, you you know, but at the same time, when I think about Ellington's career, you know, hit with criticism by the critics as well. Absolutely. Even as simple as playing Carnegie and, and having a mixed band. Let's you talk know, about that. At that time, it's just like, whoa, you, you know, integrating the band stage that I mean, the band, you know, that's that's uh that was a huge deal. So yeah, no, absolutely. It's unfortunate that we tend to do this and we, and they do this historically. This is probably a really pertinent conversation because it's Black History Month, but it's like, they do this with Martin Luther King. There's a, there's a revisionist agenda sometimes to try and make us seem way more palatable than we actually are. Even Sam Cooke, there's certain people, they just say, no, no, these were the the nice, and it's like, no, you go back and look at what Sam Cook, Sam Cook was talking about, what he was really doing, where he was performing. Like, the, you listen to the Harlem performances he was doing. It's like, oh, man, he used to go in. It's a lot of church, a lot of, like, edge to him. Uh, King, too, is just, you know, this not this perfect buttoned-up, you know, per- he's a human being. And, uh, yeah, we tend to just, in America in particular, the the media wanting to just make 
everything so buttoned up and perfect and it's just not the way it is and duke is not that person either it's like no there were edges to to these people uh, that made them very very interesting and really really radical actually in their own way that we need to actually pay attention to and and read between the lines i i could not agree with you more i think that's a really stunning uh way that you put that i mean ellington you know black brown and beige you know things that were not just immediately received warmly uh, so mm-hmm. many, you know, we, I mean, because Mary Lou working with Mary Lou. Yeah. Mary, yes. And um, yeah, he's on the, been on the forefront of a lot of actual, like real revolutionary kind of ideas at the time. Yeah, absolutely. So this idea that Ellington could sort of smooth those edges that you spoke about is almost uh, a diminishment of, you know, like you said, his rad, the radicalness. Of, of who he yeah. was They're, so that's, that's their own folly because it's like what they don't realize is actually you put two giants together that are both changing the world like in in their own ways with just as much fire as the other yeah so, and they end up making that timeless record i mean listen to duke solo on ooh, listen to duke solo on uh even on the on in a sentimental mood all these diminished angular kind of choices he's making like no 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 he was he has his own way of 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 going against the grain, um, but it's very much they're both very fiery artistic geniuses. Honestly, say um, that, say that. Yeah, the note it's, choices are different. The quantity of notes, for sure, are different. But like, so this album has two separate—not separate, but two rhythm sections. We have mm-hmm. uh, Jimmy Garrison and Elvin Jones. Classic train is exactly just about to make part of his classic quartet, what we now call call the classic quartet. Mm-hmm. And then on the Duke side, Aaron Bell, the bassist and drummer Sam Woodyard. And I, I just wonder what your thoughts are on this, because I think part of what's so stunning about the record is this overlap of Sidemen and Train playing with Ellington Sidemen, Ellington playing with his and there's an almost 30 year gap between the giant and then there's this rising star. Yeah. It's yeah. amazing. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. That's a really good point. The I guess the interesting thing is there are moments they all sound like the same generation. And that's really, really powerful. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that speaks to how Duke was always kind of evolving and always listening and and that's what it really means to be a true jazz musician. I think Miles oftentimes gets the credit for being that. And because it's just so visually obvious, his different styles, because the man was, a, you know, a very talented. He's into fashion, art, all these other things. It was very obvious to see his transitions. But now to hear Duke in this space, it's like you hear how sharp he is and what, and and that he was checking out, you know, really checking train out and checking these other artists and Ornette even who's coming out around this time and Eric Dolphy and, and, and where the music is going. You can just, you can hear it. It doesn't sound out of place and it doesn't sound like, you know, two vastly different world. Coleman Hawkins, he had that same ability. They're ta- like, there's that video with Coleman Hawkins and Burr and I'm like, oh man, it's, it's cool to see some of those musicians transition from swing era to bebop and how that sounds. Dexter's another one, just like he did it so seamlessly, but there were just, just certain people with, with the mind and the ears opened and uh, they just kind of, Sonny Rollins, another one that just kind of sound consistently themselves through all these different eras. And yeah, Duke's one of them. 
truly incredible. Yeah. Big Nick is one of my favorites on here, though. Big Nick's crazy. That's a fire cold game, bro. Yeah, that's a great one. I love that tune as well. And your tune. And your tune. And Jellica. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. So that's, uh, we were talking about uh, a couple of weeks ago that uh, my mother always said I came out of the womb listening to this album because, <laughs> because it was literally played all the time when she was carrying me. My father uh, was a great jazz trumpet player and was a huge train person. And he would just play this record over and over again. And, you know, he remixed the spelling of my name, obviously put the K in there, a little accent over the E. But I am so proud to be named after a Duke Ellington tune played by my favorite saxophonist, actually really my favorite musician of all time. It just, it's, it's a beautiful badge of honor. I, I appreciate it. You know, it's beautiful. It's such a good tune. I was saying before we started, how we, I remember I had to, we played this arrangement when I was in school. Mm-hmm. It's just such a good tune. Yeah. It kind of speaks to that thing about Ellington that we were talking about where he really played music of the diaspora added a lot of different uh diasporic elements into the music and it has this calypso afro caribbean um feel um he puts it on an album called afro bassa the same year but it's it's just called purple gazelle like i don't know yeah exactly purple gazelle exactly that's the chart yeah so but it's it's a beautiful feel and what i love about it is that Ellington lays out for so much of the tune. And I always wondered, like, why is he laying out so much? But in my mind, in my imagination, I was like, I think he's just enjoying. I think he's just sitting back like, wow, look at these, look at these young people go. Yeah, taking this, taking this tune to a whole other level. Maybe I never even imagined. Now it's, I, I hear you on that. Maybe, maybe, or he's just the master of orchestration and arrangement space comping he's so yeah he just knows what to play when to play it that yeah that that probably is more so it but that that in a sentimental mood you have brought up Mm -hmm. this is easily i mean it's 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 written in in the 1930s i don't remember exactly the year you know and, and then it um yeah 35 okay and this version just has such a vibe when and so what's interesting is that you have this tune on your album called 90s mm-hmm. and there's a you you sample this part of love jones where oh, yeah. <laughs> where Lorenz Tate's character is like trying to make his way upstairs for a nightcap kind of thing but it's ironic because this tune in a sentimental mood is featured in love jones so when was the first time you heard it was it through love jones or was it through now, through my my jazz tutelage, is probably the first time I heard in the sentimental mood, and it's it's one of those early ballads that they try and teach you. I think pretty pretty early on in in jazz, you know what I mean. So, mm-hmm. no, that that it wasn't love. I don't. It, and if it was, it was it was in the back of my mind maybe when I heard it. Um, right. That yeah. You're because you're born in ninety one. Oh, ninety one. Ninety one. Yeah. No, I, yeah, exactly. When I saw Love Jones, it probably wasn't the year it came out, but certainly, you know, sometime in the late 90s, probably. Yeah. What is your take on this version? Because, I mean, you you must have heard it 
a million times over. So what what to you is dis- is distinguishable about this version? First Duke's arrangement. Uh, uh, that Oof. that's crazy. Just that just like that is it, that is so good, you know. Um sounds like pitter patter rain like it's it's uh he just painted a scene with that and then trains upper register you know he could have taken that melody down an octave i didn't think about that i just love that train plays i guess maybe as an alto player too he just so often wants to play up in that range that speaks to me you know the higher part of the tenor and it's like very much right there in the meat of the alto register wise so like yeah i love that he gets this cry out of the top of his horn and there's something about the room too that sounds that gives that upper register it's almost like echoey like that right that reverb that natural reverb in there yeah Yeah. he played into the piano i don't know i there were probably it might be a photo of this session yeah there's just a beautiful reverb i agree with you Um, yeah and that song it sounds so good yeah it's also, I feel like, and I, not just because of Love Jones, I just feel like it's also probably the most sultry version of it I've ever heard. Like the yeah. most, something feels very like like a, a real yeah vocalist and just it, it's it's perfect. It's perfect. Train's phrasing is just uh, chef's kiss and a different key too. A different key ah. than, than a lot of people will play it. I should say, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, mm-hmm. or sing it in even right. They'll sing it in a different key too. Absolutely. So something about this key is just so, wait, is it D flat? It's, uh, you know. Duke, I think it Duke is. Knows, Duke knows what to do. He be, there's certain keys that just bring this mood and this nostalgia. I swear to yeah, D flat is, oof, a lot mm. of those really straight horn joints, uh, Flowers have Left Some Thing in that key. Yeah, a lot of Duke's tunes are in that in D flat, but got, he was like, nah, that's where we finna put it. It's perfect. Perfect. And I think I love that observation. I now have to go back and think about mm-hmm. those songs in that with that in mind. Oh wow. Yeah. Yeah. Just like the gospel key too, you know, like total praise and all these beautiful mm-hmm. gospel. What about D flat, man? I don't know. It, yeah, it just his... pulls on your heartstrings, that that key. So it got maybe it's the light and the dark. Maybe it's like you know, some some black keys, white keys. It's like the perfect blend. It's just a bluesy, soulful, nostalgic kind of happy sad key mm-hmm. and like you said the, that that intro and outro really um the way duke and he does that on a few of these tunes uh, my little brown book comes to mind mm-hmm. the, those beautiful beautiful intros and outros to the tunes that just bookend them so gorgeously yeah. i mean it's just it's it's perfection arranging like you said um and exactly. producing you're right that's like what a producer would do these days like Oh no, we got we got to flip the intro and you got to do it's like he's doing it 
potentially on the spot. Yeah. And you know what? Mm -hmm. Probably so, because they didn't do a lot of takes and they didn't have a lot of uh, rehearsal time for this album. In fact, um, I had read that Train said that one of the things he learned from Duke in this session was, Cleo Train was a bit obsessive or compulsive about Mm -hmm. takes and how Duke was kind of like, yeah, bruh, like, we got it. You know, one, 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 maybe two, tops three, and then let's, let's let it go. And he said that he adopted that from Duke when he went with the classic quartet. Like they wouldn't just, they wouldn't just play it ad nauseum, but that's where he kind of got it from, which is dope. I like that. I kind of do something similar. I mean, I think a lot of musicians that hit the studio a lot, they'll realize like the magic is typically in take one or two. I think a lot of my records is for yeah first or second take yeah for mm-hmm. sure yeah there's always something there and if something especially nowadays if something's a little off like we can nudge it in post but typically when it comes to the improvised part a lot of that that community that early those early ideas and the communication there typically in the first few takes yeah mm-hmm. yeah that that potency it starts to wane i think you know, over, mm-hmm. over time, I would imagine. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think for sure. And at least in, in our particular style and idiom. Yeah. Now, mm-hmm. Pop, I don't know. I heard about some Bruno Mars interview. And apparently he does hundreds of, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of takes. And Anderson yeah, Pack was like, oh man, this is a lot. But he was saying on that Silk Sonic record, Bruno going to do it till it's right. So it's different for, you know, different strokes for different folks. But I think yeah. jazz is certainly, we're going to get it the first couple of takes. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Speaking of takes, take the cold train. Oh, yeah. I mean, no pressure, right? Just Duke Ellington just <laughs> writes a song for you with your name in it and you're going to play on it. Like, no pressure. That's hard. Can you imagine? <laughs> no. <laughs> Braxis Blues. No, nah, right? that would be intense. That'd be intense. It's like, yeah, it's easy. And and obviously a take on take the A train, you know, take the coal train. So that he he took one of his most famous pieces and flipped the title for you. Like, no pressure. And train, I mean, I don't know, he probably was nervous, but that's that that's solo. Oof. I know. And then in that in this era, like 63, oof, playing all the that's all the all the shit I like. Because he's working out all those ideas that just so ahead so we're all still working on that language you know and still dissecting it and and, you know what i mean like mark trying to understand it make sense of it and utilize some of that that language you know because during that time he was just processing so much information all these different scales modes modalities and feelings and stuff and it's like and he's just always working it out so it's just uh I mean, to catch him on a form like a blues is one of the best because you can just fully go there. first tune where we hear Jimmy Garrison too. We're starting to hear other flavors of the band. But what's cool is that we hear trains people 
on Ellington tunes. Right. It's so dope. It's Funny they didn't start with it. Like that's that's gangster too. Like they're like, nah, what we gonna do? Start with this palette though. With exactly. A little pocket, a little pocket with a little feel on it. It's crazy. Exactly. Crazy. And then going into Big Nick, which you said was one of your favorites, uh, written for George Walker, Big Nick Nicholas, a tenor saxophonist who mm-hmm. was an early inspiration of Train. So there's a lot of love on this album. There's a lot of wink nods and and showing love to one another and and mm-hmm. to their um, inspirations and things like that. And then tra- and so Train pulls out the, the soprano on this record. Like, mm-hmm. do you think, and playing like all this like out harmony, I mean, do, do, what do you think it may have been happening for him? Do you think there was maybe any he- hesitation to? Yeah, because you're playing with this giant dude who also was like this master of harmony, right? But mm-hmm. the do you think that there's pressure from a younger generation to maybe hold back a little bit in that moment? I would think so. Mm-hmm. I would, I, yeah, I would think that trying sensitive to all of those energies and those thoughts maybe going through his head but for all we know like you said duke might have just encouraged him to do his own thing i wonder that too um because i know exactly what you're saying there's sometimes that pressure when you're playing with, with like ogs and legends to like oh let me not play too long let me not overstay out you know what i mean just to be a little more cognizant of the space you're you're taking up but i don't know if there was a conversation that was had about that but it, whatever came out was incredible and when yeah. train started going he played like it was 1963 train like <laughs> big time yeah big time. Uh, and i love him on soprano i know that there's you know some people some people love him on soprano some people don't mm-hmm. i happen to love his sound on soprano because it's so you do okay mm-hmm. yeah love it love it like I mean, Central Park West is one of my favorite soprano, Coltrane tune, like shit, tunes in general. Like I know we're talking about this album, but Coltrane Sound is that's a that's another one. That's that's up there. That's a great record. Ooh. Crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, that whole record, no skips, everything is fire. And you really hear him working out all the col- all the giant all those his train changes over everything. You can really hear it. But, what else is on there? Central Park West and Equinox. Yeah, Equinox is crazy. That's another yeah. one. Equinox. Uh, oh, that body Liberia. and soul. Oh yeah, body and soul. Twenty six two. Yeah, it's like all of these tunes got a lot of his his changes on it. It's really he's working it out over standards. I, that, that's easily my favorite. That that body and soul can can bring me to tears. That oh, that yeah. is just. Whew. But we Somewhere. digress. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right yeah but his soprano one i mean yeah i love his sound and mm-hmm. very few i mean no one can really get that tone it's crazy yeah it's great sounds incredible and then stevie uh who tipping it, it's tipping it's yep. such a shift in the sound of the record mm-hmm. I feel right like. in the middle mm-hmm. yeah exactly it's a very slick ellington-esque tune with train playing Train is always train, like no matter what on these tunes. And I love that. I Me love too. that. He's just so, yeah, honest and authentic and true to, to himself. It's it's beautiful. It's inspiring. And yeah, like you said, yeah, it's dope to see it uh, just all, yeah, all work and all sound like one band and one sound. Um, 
I'll say like this record though, you really, like you said, you do feel and hear that transition, but just, yeah, just even the feel. I love that marriage though, because it's, it's what trains comes from. So let's talk about that for a second, because I feel like there's a tendency to forget that. Mm -hmm. I know, right. Yeah, that train didn't just come out of nowhere. It -hmm. wasn't just like spontaneous combustion. Yeah, giant steps. Right. Like he comes from a lineage that he deeply respected and deeply studied. Mm -hmm. I think, is it because he himself was such a masterful teacher and what he left that we maybe forget like that he was also a student at a point. I mean, he never stopped talking about being a student. Ever. I think it's just the American media, the just what, that's just how, unfortunately, I think sometimes legends are packaged and made to be remembered. It's, it's typically a snapshot and a small, like we said earlier about even like MLK and then Duke and it, it's typically, unfortunately, kind of watered down, and 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 there's like a typically a snapshot of like the the peak of or, or their contribution to the lineage as opposed to just like the, them in totality. You know, and I think we tend to all right, Giant Steps and Love Supreme, like you know, <laughs> and Miles Davis, oh, kind of blue, and it's like there's more, there's a lot, there's a lot more as far as how it intersects with the the masses and and pop culture. I think that's that's one thing, that's one conversation, but. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I think I think it's important to acknowledge that even even beyond swing, how he used to play the blues, walk the bar, and have to do some like pop gigs and bar gigs of their time, um, of that time, you know, rock and roll at this time, obviously being the mo- more popular form of music. I'm sure they all had friends playing, or people they used to know that played with Motown at the same time. They're like, oh yeah, I'm touring with this band. I'm out with the Temptations playing saxophone. I'm sure they knew those people. Like we tend to separate all this, like it was just this jazz or something. And it's like, no, there's rock and roll happening. There's soul R&B happening. And and a lot of those bands were like jazz musicians. That's right. Um, and and sometimes they played on each other's music or or toured or we don't even know. A lot of some of this stuff maybe may not even be documented. But I'm sure there was some overlap, at least in their circles, or they knew someone back home touring with this band. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And, and all that stuff, like they listened to those records too. Like I don't think I don't think it's beyond me that Duke didn't hear a rock record of the time, and it, it's going, it's going, it's going to somehow be filtered through what he knows and what he's experienced, and maybe come out. Who knows? So I try to do with my own music. Even it's like I can't just turn off the fact that it's 2023 and just you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. And uh yeah, like you read Duke's uh, or you read um yeah, Coltrane's book and it's like, yeah, he used to do a lot of those gigs, yeah, those bar gigs and those having to play rock and roll solos and, and do some of those things. And it's like it makes sense. I, I feel like he probably gleaned elements from that style of music, whether it be like playing a hook, whether it be building a solo to a certain part, like just elements of that music, um, and those styles. Um yeah. That I feel like, you know, I'm sure blended with everything he was working on that made his cadenza so captivating. Mm-hmm. Every experience you've 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 gone through, I'm sure it, it comes through you at some point. It's just important to think of all of those facets um, that influenced him and helped to create the artist that he is today. You know, mm-hmm. we tend to do that with other people, but like Roy Hargrove and Herbie sometimes more like, oh, yeah, he did all these other you know what i mean uh sometimes wayne 
but I feel like even with Coltrane, who we know is one of the most spiritually devout and, you know, committed musicians of all time, also probably heard some of that music too. Yeah. He grew up in the church and all of these different elements, right, that come out. Aside from just studying Slumnitsky and playing, you know what I mean? It's more than, it's it's all of it. It's all of it. It's the experience. And that's why we all love it. You are, you are nailing it like to the T, I feel like, and really even opening me up to thinking about it in that way. Cause like, even I, I remember reading about Train going to see Malcolm, Malcolm X speak, right? So even culturally, mm-hmm. we tend to think that like, well, what did they do when they weren't playing? I mean, I know Train was always had his horn around his neck. They used to say he slept with it and all these, all these urban yeah. legends and maybe some truth to a lot of it, but what were they doing when they weren't, playing you know what i mean like they were going to hear people talk or going out to you know check out other things and like they didn't just play they didn't just go in the studio and record records and practice they had social lives they had other things family exactly and with train you brought up a spiritual aspect right like Mm -hmm. it would make total sense that he would be going to check out malcolm and, and seeing what he's talking about you know i mean we're all living here in new york is so robust at that time you know mm-hmm. my mother used to talk about going down she's like oh Malcolm's speaking today this afternoon and then Miles is playing tonight and then this is you know what I mean like it just that yeah. so-and-so's at the blue Morocco you know it, it just yeah. <laughs> first of all just to be alive in, in that time but um That's I think it. you're right the fullness of what they were listening to who they were rubbing elbows with who mm-hmm. they were checking out what were they reading all those things tie into the the whole musician so to me when I hear a song like Stevie and you know train tearing it up just taking it all the way out this very very Ellington-esque tune Mm. it makes so much sense to me because of course you can hear certainly I think from a, a harmonically progressive place that there's no you don't have a train without an Ellington yeah you know yeah, you really almost they spell it out for you almost in that in this particular record. Almost like the, you know, like a thesis statement to some degree. Like of, mm-hmm. this is this is it. This is I knew so much of handing over the baton, but it just this is you really see how it's it's all one and it's a yeah. continuum. As far as I'm concerned, this, this, Sorry. Come on. No, 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 do it, do it. It's fine. This is such a masterful, beautiful tune. This is a stray horn tune. And it, just like that majestic beginning. And it just train just gets prettier and prettier as he sort of develops this solo 
you know, it just, it's still, there's some gorgeous lines here. Like, I mean, I know people talk a lot about train on something like impressions or whatever, Mm -hmm. but what are your thoughts about Coltrane as a ballads player? I think um, for me, the, the things that stand out are his, like again, the upper register is beautiful. There's like a nice, there's like a quiver and a cry to it. Um, mm. I like that uh, Coltrane, even, even it could be a blues. He can be playing all of his shit and then top of the chorus bust out the most beautiful melody. He'll do it on Bye Bye Blackbird. He'll do it on Take the Coltrane, you know, um, that like almost reigns you back in the listener and everybody, you know, into just like this singing, wailing melody. And it's just like, uh. so it's just like his overall understanding of tension and release, you know, when to put his foot on the gas, when to back, all of that is masterful. It makes the most complex things to me palatable and understandable for, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, because of just what his phrasing ultimately, when to place, place things, how to tell the story. He's so good at that. Uh, Like one thing I take from train on a lot of these are his opening statements on a solo you know i mean he's done it all over the place i'm more to the point where i'm just like man did he write this out before he got there do you think about what i'm gonna, what I'm gonna do and he <laughs> made it like uh some someday my prince will come even like when he enters on that tune um, <laughs> exactly exactly that's just crazy it's so far so yeah he's very cognizant of just like how to get your attention an opening statement how to mm. develop that, where the tension and turmoil needs to be, and then where the resolution needs to be. It's almost, he's like a masterful storyteller in that sense. Obviously a technician. And then the sound itself is one of the most just pure, uh, beautiful tones on the tenor. Perfectly imperfect. Oof. Mm-hmm. Man, you got, you, you're really opening my mind like so much in terms of just his approach yeah. to to the salt to the solo to the ballad there's this part on my little brown book where he it's like the top of the second b section mm-hmm. so the second time they play that b section it is oh my goodness and he even quotes like if you keep going a little bit he even quotes like a little bit of sentimental going back into the top oh like, that's hard hard <laughs> to do that like yeah. and i'm gonna quote this song but harmonically differently and it's gonna lead right back into the top of the come on yeah. now i know it's too much it's, it's too much. much that's matt that's the magic he yeah. probably did the first take and it was like <laughs> keep that one because that's that's wow man. Oh so i gosh. love the pulse under that we missed that oh the moving the ballad is moving tempo oh, yeah. motion forward motion circular cyclical yeah that's 
that's it. I know we touched on Angelica, but I mean, the way Ellington sets it up so beautifully for, for Train to just come out like a like a, a hundred meter dash, <laughs> just like. <laughs> it's so true. And then, man, the melody. Melody, melody, melody. Train, he is. he understands melody. He understands how important it is, how to always keep it in your playing. And that's what a lot of the greats do so well. Even Bird, like Bird, Lester, Dexter, Train is no different in that. The melody's always present. He, throughout his solo, he'll, you know, he even comes back to, or he'll, he'll come back to melody throughout. Uh, and that's just so crucial. Yeah. Like, we're not just playing a tune in F, we're playing Angelica. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? We're not just playing a ballad in D flat. We're playing in a sentimental mood. We're playing, you know, we're, this is a, there's a, there's a through line and a conceptual and understanding of like what we're doing and what we're playing and what song we're playing. And that's always important and often very often lost in our, our generation of Phil sometimes, you know, a lot of my instructors used to always beat me over the head about that, but it's, it's so important, the melody. And I think, you know, harmonic, obviously like, the reason train can play a solo and you're like, oh my God, it's the most beautiful thing I've never I've ever heard is because of his understanding of harmony and stuff like that. But then it goes back to what you're describing, mm-hmm. that the melody being king and keep yeah. going back to that. That's the thing that hooks people. Oh yeah. That's the thing that, like you said, you remember that you're listening to a specific tune and not just anything that could be an F or whatever. Exactly. Yeah, that's so true. And it should be the launching pad for our ideas, whether we're making ideas kind of counter to it or we're doing them that are kind of like, you know, kind of with the melody and inspired by. It's like, yeah, that should be kind of the the focus. Uh, Certainly the material that you're using to improvise from, you know, as a general thesis for all improvisers. I guess that's the point of it. And it's, uh, it's just masterful at that. It's no secret why it's like uh, it cuts you right to your to the core. It's like uh. yes, yes. There's a part on um Angelica, like you could just I can hear the joy as he's letting the tune unfold, like letting like mm-hmm. as it's opening up because it's a very simple tune with a very short head. It's a really right. short and sweet melody, and mm-hmm. as it unfolds, I just hear him getting more and more. The joy in this tune yeah. is what I was what I really hear. Obviously, the badass just come it's on. true. You you can hear it for like real jubilant and it's buoyant. It feels that way. It's got that triplet kind of in there. It's, it's fire. It's it's such a good tune.
made me think about also just that melody and the way he, Duke's playing it. A Monk too, just like Train's stint with with Monk, those records were amazing. But he's yes. another just master of like playing the melody. <laughs> I'm going to play yeah. the melody to evidence under your entire solo. And that's it. Matter of fact, my solo is going to be the melody. Right. Right. You know, with a couple extra clusters or something. And it's like, oh, man, that's it. I think that's such a good point. People tend to gloss over that period with with Monk around 57 or whatever it was. Yeah. And yeah. it's just like there was Miles and then there was the Great Quartet. It's like, wait a minute. That period was pivotal. Yeah. You know, Absolutely. and and I've I've read interviews where where Coltrane will say as much, but I think because it was a short it was a short stint, but it was I think you hear Coltrane differently from then on out. I agree. Mm-hmm. I feel like, yeah, that that is a huge takeaway I get certainly, but I'm sure you know Train did as well, just how important, you know, melody is to to these tunes. Like I, I don't like I feel like that's how we can listen. We can sit there through eleven minutes. I mean, a regular, an average person can even sit there and listen to like my favorite things and be like, "Well, I was," and still hear the melody, even though right. they're you know McCoy's. They're going, they're going in, but it's it's so ever present. Um, and I, yeah, I don't think I don't even know if yeah if if Train would be pl- if that would be the case without those periods with in Monk's band because um, that's someone that just so clearly understood rhythm timing phrasing space and melody beautifully said and train just worked out he worked out all his you know it was i guess it's like the sheets of sound kind of period where he's working out a lot of those you know scales but eventually i feel like he he found and discovered his own harmonic pieces and concepts and then really honed in on his own you know language thank you for bringing that up because i think we don't we don't talk about that period enough and what a powerful time that was for him it was short but it was like indelible in his mm-hmm. in his development 1000 percent. yeah not for sure and and it's funny because it almost now you're making me think about when i hear angelica it almost it sounds kind of monkish and we know that you know monk didn't cover a whole lot of people mm-hmm. but when he did do a tribute album it was an ellington album so it, it all kind of so many intros are so. I mean, yeah, Monk pulls so much from from Duke. Just like the ringing of the bells, a lot of like a lot of early Duke's music inspired by trains or the A train or like some of those kind of sonic elements he was trying to capture while in Harlem. Just the hustle and bustle of that was New York. It's like you can hear that in the compositions. You can hear it in his comping, in his space, in the choices. Um, a real like orchestrator on the spot. And that's what, yeah, Monk is, is that really composing and allowing the space for Train or, or Johnny Griffin or whoever, or Charlie Rouse, you know, to just to do their thing and express themselves while still being grounded in the tune and not in the changes in the tune. It's crazy. It's just so good. And of course, like, you know, Monk's thirds and, and sevens, everything is just genius and the voice leading and all that as well. Like it's on some other stuff too, but we digress again. Right. <laughs> But it's funny that you bring up like the feeling, feeling the, the the city, feeling the pulse of the environment, because like as we approach, like talking about the last tune on this record, the feeling of jazz. Right. And that. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's, it kind of just led into that when you were talking about I could feel what you were. I'm a native New Yorker. So like That's that really. Sad. Yeah. So that resonated with me when you were like the feel, the pulse, you know, the subway, the 
the pulse of the people, the horns, you know, the the rhythm that you have to have to, because I feel like just to walk in New York, mm-hmm. you have to have a rhythm established because if not, you're going to be too slow. Somebody behind you is going to bump into you. Yeah. You know, everything is about rhythm, pulse, propensity when you live in this, at least in the five boroughs. I'm from the Bronx. So, you know, too, yeah, yeah I, you know, I totally agree. People tell me I still walk like uh, living like in New York. a New Yorker. <laughs> yeah, it's too fast. And people out here just enjoy just looking outside and, and enjoying <laughs> the sun, the palm trees. Yeah. I'll be trying to get to where I got to get to. But there, yeah, there's just a, you're absolutely right. There's a momentum and a speed and an energy in New York. So yeah, it's it's one of a kind. And totally, I feel like uh, Billy Strayhorn and do both, you know, their compositions really mm. do a great job of just trying to capture a lot of that. Mm-hmm. That song that they do to close the album, The Feeling of Jazz. Again, here's here's Duke with that beautiful intro. I mean, we come out of Angelica with that. You know, we come out of that like daisy, like chromatic thing. And then he hits us again with this, you know, once again, like one of his just signature intros, like you were saying, the importance of the setup when you were talking about trains, you know, solos. Absolutely. You hear that in Duke's setup of the tune. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever heard a tune like this before. There's something, I don't know why. I mean, you probably have the language to break it down better than I, but like there's something about this tune that just feels kind of like a departure from from other tunes. Here's just something, and you just like I, I need to go practice. Yes, and, uh, that was that was really really amazing. Yeah, <laughs> so it's good. something about that tempo right there. Yeah, and it, it takes me to what you were speaking about earlier about train and the walking of the bar. Mm. There's something about that. Just... That's why that's, it's a, it's that strut tempo. There's something about that one. I got me that one's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> the feeling of jazz. The yeah, feeling... I think right. that tempo is quite difficult what some would say the grown grown man tempo it's not too fast not too slow and it's just like hard to hold that that tempo you yeah i see what you mean because you're not you can't just go off to the races like you got to really sit in it yeah that's it's not too easy much huh? to double time i think yeah like to double time that mm-hmm. it's probably, yeah that's that middle ground where it's probably too difficult to really double time you just got to make it work with your eighth note is going to really expose like one the depth and width of your sound to fill up that eighth note or and quarter note probably as a bass player and then as a horn player just like to really fill that up um it's going to expose your just ability to swing mm. that's one of those tempos that like yeah you you can't hide under the technique for sure and you got to say something as well 
Ooh. So that's like, a word. That's that's one of those. It's hard. I'm in awe. I just gotta shake my head. Like, golly, just exactly. Like, damn, <laughs> train. Like, god damn. Right. You, know? you gotta do that, bro. No, it's it's right. Really- like you just gonna stunt on everybody yeah, like that on. though. <laughs> and it's like yeah, because the form's interesting. It's kind of like a blues, then it goes to the relative minor section. It's it's a it's an interesting tune, actually. Yeah, not fully your blues, not fully some other thing. It's kind of just everything. You gotta have the blues in this particular tune because I think a lot of the changes are similar until it goes to that other section. You're yes. articulating what I was not confused about, but why I was like, I don't know how to peg this tune. It's not like I was like, this Oh, the get yeah, structure and form, right? The yeah, structure. it's almost the blues, but then it goes somewhere else. So yeah. That's interesting. When you want it, I think when your ear almost wants it to come back to one, it's going, it's going to like the six. <laughs> mm-hmm. Even just that that opening when he comes in, I was like, is it still in four? And I'm like, oh yeah, it is. It's just like an inch. It's just so. It's just such a an interesting little tune. He probably intentionally in that way. It's the intro totally reflects kind of what you're gonna hear. The rest of it, it's a little, it's a little different than maybe how you might expect it to go, and that's nice. It's a little off in the in the best way possible. I love it. And to imagine, just to go back to the fact that they did not spend a lot of time working this stuff out mm-hmm. at all. I think they had like a day, if I'm not mistaken, they rehearsed a day. I mean, what? You know what I mean? These, these are not easy tunes. These are not outside of sentimental mood and maybe my little brown book. These are not like maybe tunes that you've played a thousand times. You know what I mean? Right. And it's like Ellington is playing Train's tunes and Train is playing like, and just the way it's so cohesive and beautiful. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just speaks to the the titans that they they were uh, and are I, and I, I up to and love like it's like yeah. when, you, when you when you enter a space and it's like oh wow we, we're coming from the same thing or we love we love we both love this same person the same artist or something like that. it's like it's it sounds like that the music sounds that way yeah if you could play yeah. with one musician where there's like clearly a huge gap in age and mm-hmm. and and sort of um generation of of the sound like who, who do you think it would be oh oh right in the sound. i mean herbie still for me herbie and that feels doable particularly now i'm living out here but herbie that would be incredible i don't know what might come from that yeah i would love to just to get in the room and maybe who knows it'll could, happen yeah i know it could be a song because i know he just likes to do make just beautiful art music whatever so we'll see i might have to hit terrace and see next time right, to <laughs> right. Let, me, let me just carry something carry my, i don't know uh yeah i, I would love to, to link with her and maybe potentially make music or just be in the room be a fly on the wall let's see 27 yeah i know what you mean 27 30 years old to me who else uh uh, I mean, this guy plays my instrument, but like, this is, you know, he's the best. Kenny Garrett. Ooh. If I were still out in Jersey, I would be over his crib probably right now. But like, I need to, <laughs> I need to, um, yeah, we gotta, I gotta link up with Kenny and just, yeah, because he's a just incredible musician. Flowers to Kenny Garrett. I feel like he's a titan of our times. And I think that's well established and very well understood, but can mm-hmm. never say his name too much, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I yeah. agree. A lot of us wouldn't, a lot of us as, as in horn players and sax players wouldn't be doing what we're doing without the doors this man opened. And yeah. And so. So, I mean, I guess in closing, what, what would you say? I mean, I mean, we could talk about 63 train for 
for hours. Forever, not for real. Yeah, you know. But what what would be your biggest takeaway about the significance of this album? It's uh, probably what I hear from it the most is just this honesty and and a, a transparency, but also uh, and this is important as black men and this time and black people for like period, but like a vulnerability um, in a space where that's accepted and even lauded. Like that's inspiring. You know, particularly like some of the most popular songs on here are ballads and the ones where I feel like he's really crying out and allowing their that sensitivity to be on display is just like that's inspiring for me, particularly as a jazz musician, a saxophonist and now a vocalist as well. That, that leads with just like my who I am, what I'm value, my family and things that are very important and sensitive to me. It's uh, it's uh, inspiring to be to see that see that those are the ones that, that connect the most and it's like a a reminder to lead with that and lead with love and lead with really who you are and what you're about and play with your heart on your sleeve really that's that's what being an artist is about. I love that. You can hear it. You just can hear it. The train, you know. So. Oh yeah. yeah. I think for me, like aside from the the uh, no pun intended, the sentimentality of of the record for me that um being plugged into those who came before you and being allowed the room and being encouraged to be mm. yourself, even amongst this like godlike Ellington and you're you're encouraged to be yourself. You can hear him giving him the the nod. You can feel yeah. the you can feel the hug. You can feel I know you didn't want to say the baton, but like something in there, you know, of just yeah. like there's this encouragement. I agree with you. That encouragement to mm-hmm. be free at a time where, you know, freedom, when we think of just freedom in general um, in that time. was Yeah, just, we couldn't uh, vote at that time. Hello. Yeah, Voting Rights Act was until 64. So, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I know what you mean. In that you know, time. in that time to mm-hmm. have that, that sanction of just brotherhood and mm-hmm. love. Embrace and all that. Yeah, that's, all of right. that. that's so powerful. That's so true. Yeah. I mean, we can obviously we've talked extensively about the music and even just the the love, the sanction, the the yeah. And I'm gonna put all this gorgeousness all over it. You know, it just oh, I think that perhaps they maybe didn't know the impact that this album would have. Yeah. Because it was sort of like a um conceptually like, hey, let's do this for this purpose. Yeah. But as a result. I'm convinced that this album, at least maybe more than Kind of Blue, um, has brought people into the music as a launch, as a launching point, a starting point. Like if you've not heard anything else, you've probably heard in a sentimental mood. You I know, think. for folks who are not into jazz or no, they messed around and made a classic. You said it. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Well, I mean, I just want to thank you so much. Uh, this has been great. Thank you great. so much. Um, I know you are about to uh, go on tour. I am. I am. Yeah. So March 2nd is the beginning of our the Black Nostalgia album run, this tour, uh, where we're going to be, you know, playing most of the music for my album, Who Are You When No One Is Watching, starts in L.A., March 2nd, our tour. And then uh, it's going to go all the way through uh, like April 22nd, where we end in New York and elsewhere. So, but you can get tickets at braxtoncook.com slash tour dates and, um, or just Google it. However you like to find tickets and stuff. Yeah. Awesome. And I, I hope to get to, when you come to New York, I hope to be there 
Pull up, pull out. up. It's we gonna we will we absolutely will and just again thank you so much uh your braxton cook on social media right it's just braxton, yeah, it's just braxton cook. Yep. cook. there might be an underscore in between braxton cook but yeah just braxton cook you'll find we'll me. find it you'll find it <laughs> who are you when no one is watching who are you when no one is watching out today thank oh. you so much appreciate you my brother thank you angelica appreciate you this has been awesome for us Thank you. We'll catch you next time. Milestones with Angelica Beener is a production of WBGO Studios. Theme music produced by Riley K. Glasper. Episode co-producer, Corey Goldberg. I'd like to send you off by wishing you a happy, healthy, joyful, and inspired Black History Month. Check out the rest of WBGO's podcast lineup at wbgo.org slash studios.